Let's get started with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by water and the Holy Spirit, you have bestowed upon us, your servants, the forgiveness of sin, received us as your own children by adoption, and made us members of your holy church, raised us to new life of grace. Sustain us, O Lord, in your Holy Spirit, that we may enjoy everlasting salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So last week, we took a look at uh, the gospel through the pastoral epistles. We saw that uh, the gospel was always God's plan for redemption, revealed in Jesus Christ. We saw that salvation comes by God's grace alone, through faith alone, not according to works done by us in righteousness, and that Christ builds his church by adopting us as sons and daughters into his family through the proclamation of the gospel. Astute observers may have noticed that I did not comment on a particular verse in our passage from last week, Titus 3, 5 which says, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And that's because I wanted to dedicate an entire class to this verse. Why would I do that? Consider our context. We are an Anglican parish in a city whose primary Christian traditions are Roman Catholicism and Southern Baptists. (laughs) All three of us have very different ways of interpreting this verse. So my goal for today is to navigate those differences and explain why our Anglican formularies, that is uh, the Book of Common Prayer, the 39 Articles, the Ordinal, and so forth, interpret this passage in terms of baptism. So let's read all of Titus 3, 4 through 7 to give some context. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I'm going to look at Titus 3.5 in particular, but this passage in general. Uh, First, I want to orient ourselves to kind of the issues involved and why we're focusing so much time on one, one, uh, one verse. Then we'll move towards actually uh, building a foundation and interpreting the verse, and then we'll conclude. So, in orienting ourselves to the issues. In the service for holy baptism in the Book of Common Prayer, the celebrant prays this before baptizing the candidates We thank you, Father, for the water of baptism. In it, we are buried with Christ in his death. By it, we share in his resurrection. And through it, we are made regenerate by the Holy Spirit. In saying, 
we are made regenerate by the Holy Spirit. This prayer directly refers to Titus 3.5 and the washing of regeneration. And this passage has been the subject of much debate, not only within Anglicanism itself, but between traditions. Roman Catholicism, for example, would agree with the words of this prayer, but they would mean something incredibly different than what we do. Non-sacramental traditions, such as Baptist, would reject the language of this prayer outright. So as we come to Titus 3.5, there's three, three major issues that either come up with the text or that I'm limiting myself to. There's the three that I want to address, let's put it that way. <laughs> three major issues in interpreting Titus 3.5. Um, the nature and efficacy of sacraments, the definition of the word regeneration, and whether or not a sacramental interpretation of scripture is valid. This is all building a foundation for us to get to Titus 3.5. Let's clarify what we mean by the word sacrament. It's, it's all over the, our theology. Um, let's, let's take a moment to just clarify what it means. Uh, the 25th article and the 39 articles of religion give us our, our working definition. Sacraments ordained of Christ be not only badges or tokens of Christian men's profession, but rather they be certain, sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace in God's good will towards us, by which he doth work invisibly in us and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. There are two sacraments ordained of Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say baptism and the supper of our Lord. And, in such, only as worthily receive the same, they have a wholesome effect or operation. But they that receive them unworthily purchase to themselves damnation, as St. Paul saith. That 1662 language creeping up on me in the middle of it. (laughs) The key point to understanding our theology of the sacraments is that God actually and effectually works through the sacraments. They are not mere symbols or visual metaphors that point you to a reality. They are rather, as the article says, effectual signs that participate in the invisible reality that they signify when they are received rightly. We'll have much more to say about what that means later, receiving them rightly. But for now, God works through the sacraments. What kind of work does God do through the sacraments? Well, it depends on the sacrament in in one sense. But generally, we can say that along with Article 25, um, that God quickens, strengthens, and confirms our faith in him. This is the view apart from differences that we'll explore later, of Anglicans, Roman Catholics, the Lutheran and Reformed churches as well. Non-sacramental traditions, as I said earlier, reject the idea totally that God does any work through the sacraments. 
And so therefore, they reject the word sacrament itself, and they opt to use the word ordinance instead. So in general, that is our starting place of understanding the sacraments. A second issue that we need to to deal with before we dive immediately into the text is how do we define regeneration? There are actually two main ways of understanding the term regeneration. Most of us are probably familiar with one of them. There's, well, okay, so there's more than two. There's, there's two that fit comfortably within um, our context and in scripture. And I'll refer to the first one as a particular view and the second one as a general view. And I'll explain what those are in turn. But both views are found within Anglicanism. And I'm going to be honest with you, for the purpose of this class, I, I don't care which one you take. <laughs> that, that, that's, not, that's not the point of this class. The point of this class is going to be showing, um, given our context of uh, non-sacramental traditions on one hand and sacramental traditions on the other that we vastly disagree with in ways, that we need not be afraid of the language of our prayer book and that it does, in fact, interpret Titus 3.5 correctly. That's the point. So whether, whether you agree with the first view that I'm going to pr promote or the, the second one, that's not um, I care, but I don't care. <laughs> so the first or particular view uh, defines regeneration in terms of conversion. And this is probably the one we're most familiar with. It is the initial work of the Holy Spirit in implanting spiritual life within the sinner. Anglican theologians know less the caliber as uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle and the Reverend John Stott take this view. In fact, they argue very strongly for this view, and they argue very strongly against the second view that I'm going to present. Indeed, this, this, this view has certainly has seeds in... Cranmer uh, in the Re Reformation, the beginning of the Reformation, but it really didn't solidify until the Puritans. And um, what what the Puritans were about um, was that they were very thankful for the Reformation in England. Uh, they 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 wondered perhaps maybe the Reformation didn't go far enough, and they wanted to reform away from Roman Catholicism a little bit more. Um, or a lot more, depending. Um, and one of the things that they were concerned about was um, how regeneration was discussed in terms of baptism. And so they, they kind of took um, a, a wider focus and narrowed it down to a, a very specific work of the Holy Spirit within us. Now, I'll say the, the difficulty that has to be overcome in this view. Pause for water and drama. The difficulty in this view that has to be overcome is the absolute wording of our prayer book itself. 
it seems to indicate that all who are baptized are made regenerate. And we just read that in the prayer, for example, earlier. We know, just from experience um, of being alive and knowing people, that not everyone who is baptized is converted. There are lots of people who got wet through a ritual that are not truly converted believers. Both Ryle and, and, and Stott deal admirably with, with this issue. Um, I'll quote Bishop Ryle first. Well, Bishop Ryle alone. The principle of the prayer book, he says, is to suppose that all members of the church to be in reality what they are in their profession. To be true believers in Christ. The prayer book takes the highest standard of what a Christian ought to be and is all through worded accordingly. So the prayer book takes the ideal view. And this isn't much different than what scripture does, right? When we read the letters to Corinth. I feel like I pick on Corinth like each week. Um, <laughs> we read the letters to Corinth and we're like, not all of y'all are regenerate, converted Christians. Like, let's just be honest. And Paul's calling them saints, right? The, the scripture itself takes this ideal view of the congregation and says, and, and speaks to the church as being full of truly converted believers. So I think Ryle and Stott are in, in good company when they explain the prayer book in this way. So it is an issue that has to be dealt with. I do think they deal with it well. This, so the first view is more of a narrow or a particular view, and, and it's regeneration as the work of the Spirit to convert us. The second, or general view, does not see regeneration as conversion, but it refers to really all the changes which occur when one is brought into the covenantal community of the church. That's, that's why it's a general view. It is much wider and it is more akin to our rec- the way that we recognize that when we baptize infants, they have been brought into the covenant community. Um, I'm going to quote J.I. Packer at length to explain this view. Uh, he wrote an essay in 2013 for the ACNA task force. Um, I'm, I hesitate to say that this was Packer's view. Um, he seems to argue for it forcibly in, in this essay. Um, uh, but in his most recent book, I, at least as far as I've gotten into it, with, which is a couple hundred pages, um, he does not really make his view known. And he, um, if you know Dr. Packer, um, he was a great enthusiast with the Puritans. And while he doesn't go, he, he, he doesn't give them... Um, when he speaks to them, he, he certainly doesn't withhold his critiques of them, and so it may be that this is his view as opposed to the task force in general, but all that to say, I'm quoting J.I. Packer, the way you should understand this is that it may not be his view, but it was something that is prepared by the ACNA task force. Does that make sense? I realize I've spent a long, 
I'm quoting J.I. Packer. It may or may not be his view, okay? In the New Testament, regeneration and new birth are not technical terms in the way that the language of justification is. They are terms that do not have sharp conceptual edges, nor are they precisely fitted into any given system of thought. Rather, they are comprehensive, panoramic pictures of a life reshaped, radical in thrust, though unspecific in detail. Regeneration, new birth, born of God imagery symbolizes and illustrates a relational change, not a first implanting of life in any sense. Any more than natural birth implants life in children who for nine months have already been growing in the womb. It's the total reordering of attitudes and actions that replace self-centeredness with Christ-centeredness in the way that a newborn child or newborn children must adjust across the board to their new environment outside of the womb. And newly married couples must adjust across the board to each other. Oh, stop it right there. I have a little bit more of the quote, but um, so it's a little bit harder to nail down a definition, in the, which is why I call it a general sense. But I, I think the, the key part of what Packer says in order to illustrate it is that in this view, it's not the work of the Spirit, initial work of the Spirit, to implant life in the sinner where there was not, in the way that. Being born doesn't implant life in the baby, right? We, we believe that life begins at conception. I'm not going to take these metaphors too far. <laughs> um, I'll leave it at that. Um, there is life there. That, that's at least the way that Packer puts it in this article, that he, being born which is the metaphor by which the New Testament helps us, uses to help us understand regeneration. There is not um, a new life in birth. There is a radical difference in the life lived, in, in the relationships. Um, again, my ultimate goal is not to persuade you of one view or the other. I, I think both are argued admirably by um, incredibly thoughtful and orthodox Anglican theologians. Um, what I want to do is that if we're going to under, is to show you that if we're going to understand Titus three five as a connection to baptism, and whether that's scripturally warranted or not. What I hope to do by showing you that whichever of these two views you take, understood correctly, does not contradict our, our prayer books and formularies use of Titus 3.5. I'll say more about that later um, in terms of like some of the problems that come up, such as uh, works righteousness, uh, does baptism convert no matter what, which is a big issue and so forth. Rightly understood, neither of these views um, but rightly understood both of these views allow for the possibility that Titus 3.5 is rightly interpreted in view of baptism. 
So we have what, um, in general, what a sacrament is, and a hint to what makes it efficacious. We have the definition of regeneration. And the last, the third and final piece of the foundation that I'm trying to build is how do we interpret scripture in general? There is, um, there is a type of interpretation of scripture that sees in every loaf of bread the Eucharist. Indeed, every grain of wheat. But that's not what I mean when I say sacramental interpretation. I mean interpreting scripture in such a way that it both recognizes the history, the historicness of the events, as well as the literary genre in which they appear, as well as the typology and intent that God superintends in the scripture. What do I I mean by that? I'll give an Old Testament example and a New Testament example. Um, In the Old Testament, in the history and the theology which is recorded in the Old Testament, it is filled with what we call types. And, And what types are, are events, people, things, which point us to Christ. Often they can be something repeated throughout history and, and builds upon each repetition builds upon, but, but ultimately they are things in the Old Testament which point us to Christ and find its, their fulfillment in him. The most obvious of these is um, the priesthood in the Old Testament, the temple, the sacrificial system. All of these point us to Christ who is the true priest, the final sacrifice, and God's true temple. And so in God's sovereign orchestration of history um, and in the same sovereign orchestration of uh, the writing of scripture, which is inspired by God, he allows these things to be um, done in history, like really done. They're not just made up in such a way that um, the that they point us forward to Christ. Adam, Jesus as the second Adam. If you want to fill in the blanks there a little bit more, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jesus. Noah and Abraham are second and third Adams. They, they re-inherit a new world, and they fail just as miserably as the first Adam. Jesus comes as the second Adam, that's the word Paul uses, even though that typology appears in, in Noah and so forth. The greater Adam, let's put it that way. Jesus is the greater Adam who succeeds in um, where Adam fell. He, he actually brings us back into the Garden City. He, he doesn't give in to the temptation of the serpent. That's what I mean by typology. There is a sacramental typology. All that to say, God in Holy Scripture has, has things in which points us to the sacramental reality of the New Testament that we see. In fact, the Old Testament 
um, or one, St. Paul himself reveals the sacramental typology in the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians 10. He speaks of the Exodus event. And he tells us that as Israel passes through the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. And then when uh, Moses strikes the rock and they uh, get water from the rock as manna rains down from heaven, that is spiritual food and spiritual drink. It prefigures the Eucharist. Do these things actually happen within history? Absolutely. Absolutely. They absolutely happen within history. This is an allegory. But St. Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says these things prefigure baptism and communion. In the New Testament, so that's our Old Testament example. In the New Testament, we have the Gospels. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind about the Gospels is that they're not mere biographies. They are theological biographies. The authors of the Gospels and indeed the entirety of Scripture write to convey a theological purpose. They select and arrange and use specific language in order to tell us things that actually did happen in history, but to interpret it for us in light of God. <coughs> so, for example, uh, the Gospel of John centers around seven signs. And those seven signs are um, John's way of fulfilling his intent in writing his Gospel, which is to show us that uh, Christ is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Christ means Messiah. That's saying the same thing. Jesus is the Messiah in whom we need to put our faith and trust. And he does it by showing that um, his Messiahship is vindicated in these seven signs. That's the first half of the Gospel of John. The second half then goes into um, Christ's passion and death and resurrection. In Luke 24, we find the story of the resurrected Jesus meeting two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're confused and they're upset. They have heard of Christ. They know Christ has died. They have heard that his body is missing. But they're, they, they're just at a loss. They're grieving. They thought he was the Messiah. How could the Messiah have been put down by Rome of all people? Well, Jesus appears to them on the road. And they don't know who he is. But during their walk, Jesus, to counter their confusion, teaches from the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and the prophets. He interprets them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That he had to die. That he was going to be resurrected if you find a verse that points to Jesus' resurrection in the Old Testament, um, that the Messiah would be raised, you're going to have a hard time doing that. He's explaining this pattern of typology in the Old Testament to them. So they understandably invite him to dinner to keep talking, to help them understand. And when they're at the table for dinner... Jesus takes bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to them. 
And when they ate, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Is this a historical event? Did this actually happen? Absolutely. But what we have in this historical event seems to me like the proclamation of the Holy Gospel through the scriptures, followed by the taking, the breaking, the blessing, and the distribution of bread. And when they partook of that bread, God actually worked in them. God opened their eyes to who Jesus was. That sounds like a Eucharistic service to me. Was it intended to be read that way by those who wrote it, Luke in this case? The same people who were doing the same service each week? I think so. Every time they gathered together, this was happening. It wouldn't have escaped Luke's notice that what he was writing was what they were, in fact, doing each week. The point that I'm making is that the church is formed and shaped around word and sacrament. And the New Testament authors did not divorce the sacramental signs from the graces they signify. Thus, when St. Paul says that Jesus applies our salvation through the washing, literally the bath, of regeneration, he intends, I think, for us to see not just God's work of cleansing us from sin within, but also the sacrament which such work, in which such work is quickened, strengthened, and confirmed. So with that, our idea of a sacrament, our range of regeneration and the fact that we can recognize that when the scripture authors were writing they did not divorce sacrament from the thing that it signified let's look at Titus 3.5 I'll read it again this part will go rather quickly I've got quotes from others so he Christ saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I just made an argument that when he writes the washing of regeneration, he intends for us to understand it both as the sign and the grace that is signified by that sign. The washing of regeneration is, is God's work within us, and it is tied to the sign of baptism. Three things um, that I hope to work through quickly. What does, this, what does this have to do with the fact that uh, he just said we're not saved by works done in righteousness? Is baptism a work done in righteousness? Two, how does this view differ from that of Roman Catholicism, who would argue much of what I've, I've been saying so far? It does differ in very big ways. Um, then I'll, I'll look at the Old Testament background to this verse quickly and wrap things up with an appeal to authority from John Calvin mostly because he's not Anglican and he agrees with what I'm saying so um, we're not the strange ones is what I'm trying to get across <laughs> so there, there, one argument that comes particularly from non-sacramental traditions is that baptism is a work of obedience and therefore to link it in any way to salvation 
is to make salvation by works, a work done in righteousness. This comes down to our fundamental difference of how we understand the sacraments. To the non-sacramental tradition, it has to be a work of obedience. Because what else is it? God isn't doing anything through it. It's a metaphor. But in the sacraments, as we hold them, the recipient is always passive. The recipient of the sacrament receives from God. The sacraments are not works that we do, but it is work that God does in and to us. And there are no more works of righteousness than our faith and repentance are. Repentance requires us to take some action, right? A, a turning away from sin. Is that not a work? Absolutely not. Faith and repentance are gifts given to us. The same is true of sacraments. We don't pour water on ourselves for a reason. We are passive. It is God who works through. But if this is true, isn't that what Roman Catholics believe? So what's the difference? We both believe that God works through the sacraments, and we both believe that the recipient is passive in receiving grace through the sacraments. Here's the difference. The difference is in how we believe the sacraments to be effective. Roman Catholicism, solidified in the Council of Trent, that sacraments work ex opere operato. That means by the work performed. In other words, the sacraments are always effectual, no matter what. If you get baptized, congratulations, you are a Christian. You are saved. You are justified. They would use the word justification different than us, but you are converted through baptism. It always saves, whether you come in faith and repentance or not. That leads to a whole host of issues beyond the scope of this class. That trickles down. But this all contradicts what we've been reading in our formularies, right? Articles 25, 27, 28. Um, they say that the sacraments are efficacious only when received rightly. What does that mean? When they are received by faith and repentance. Baptism engrafts people into the covenant community of the church, but those who persist in unbelief will eventually have their branches removed. Romans 11, 17 through 23. It is those who come through baptism into the covenant community but persist in unbelief that the author of Hebrews warns they've tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the word of God and have fallen away. When our baptism is met with faith and repentance, however, our place in God's family is secured. It's sealed. What we have what J.I. Packer calls the fivefold fruit of regeneration, which is found in Article 27. Not only are we engrafted into the church, but we receive and have sealed the promise of the forgiveness of sin. We confess that every week. And our adoption to be the sons of God. Our faith confirmed and grace increased. That is the fruit of the sacraments made efficacious in our faith, in our repentance. There's an Old Testament background to this. 
verse, and it's Ezekiel 36. It describes the future renewal of Israel, and through the prophet, God says, It is not for your sake, Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. This passage speaks of the new covenant, the mystery that was revealed in Christ that we talked about a few weeks ago, and how Israel would be brought into this new covenant. And God, through the prophet Ezekiel, uses the imagery of a physical, tangible ritual. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And an inward spiritual work of God. I will give you, I will make you clean. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. This is the way that God has always worked through covenants. The Abrahamic covenant is an obvious example that Israel becomes members of the covenant people of God through physical circumcision. And yet the covenant itself expected that they would actually undergo a circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy 10.16, Deuteronomy 36, Jeremiah 4.4, Romans 2.28-29, and also, particular to baptism, Colossians 2.11-13. In both Titus and Ezekiel, we see the imagery of being washed and renewed. In both, the agent of that renewal is God's Spirit. But in Titus, St. Paul is using the covenantal imagery that we see in Ezekiel as an expression of how God saves us and brings us into God's family. He does not divorce the covenantal sign from God's covenantal graces. Okay. Again, a lot of you are probably like me. I come from a Baptist tradition. Some of you may come from a Roman Catholic position. Tradition, others may have been cradle Episcopalians. God bless you. Um, if you're, if you're, or something else. If, you, if, you, if, if you're in a position like me, this, this might sound crazy. This is exactly the opposite of what you've heard before. But it is the historical interpretation of the church. The church fathers universally interpreted the passage in this way. And in fact, so did the reformers. Now, they may have some nuance between them, which is why I'm quoting John Calvin rather than some of the English reformers. Well, okay, two reasons. That's one. The second one is that what he says agrees with what I've said a lot. So <laughs> always pick the ones that agree with you. Calvin writes, By the washing of regeneration, I have no doubt that Paul alludes at least to baptism. And that even I, it's a great way to put it, even I will not object to have this passage expounded as relating to baptism. Not that salvation is contained in the outward symbol of water, but because baptism tells to us the salvation obtained by Christ. The strain of the passage runs thus. God hath saved us by his mercy the symbol and pledge of which he gave in baptism by admitting us into his church and engrafting us into the body of his son. Now the apostles are wont to draw an argument from the sacraments 
to prove that which is there exhibited under a figure, because it ought to be held by believers as a settled principle that God does not sport with us by unmeaning figures. He doesn't give us in Scripture the picture of the sacraments and then expect us to walk away with a different understanding. He, when, he, when he refers to the physical sign and the thing signified, he's not joking with us. He does not sport with us by unmeaning figures, but inwardly accomplishes by his power what he exhibits by the outward sign. Therefore, baptism is fitly and truly said to be the washing of regeneration. Although by baptism, wicked men are neither washed nor renewed. Yet it retains that power so far as relates to God, because although they reject the grace of God, still it is offered to them. In other words, the baptism, even if you come um, without faith and repentance, baptism itself is a proclamation of the gospel in, in visual form. And so the offer of the gospel is still made in baptism, even if you reject it. But here, Paul addresses believers in whom baptism is always efficacious, and in whom, therefore, it is properly connected with its truth and efficacy. Baptism signs and seals and pledges our regeneration if we come to baptism in faith and repentance. One thing I will add to that is the timing is not what's important. That's why we baptize infants. That's why we don't re-baptize somebody who has been baptized and realize later that, oh, now I'm a Christian. <laughs> there is one baptism. The timing's not what matters. So I'll, I'll bring this class to an end um, with a quick final summary. Our prayer book and formularies teach us rightly, according to scripture, that baptism is a sign, seal, and pledge of regeneration. Baptism is efficacious in bringing people into God's new covenant and its community, bearing fruit when our baptism unites with faith and repentance. Titus 3, 4, and 7 is not self, through 7 is not self-contradictory. We are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone. Full stop. The fruit of which is signed and sealed in our baptism. Baptism is not a work that we do. Second, non-sacramental traditions in Roman Catholicism both err in their teaching on baptism. That error is unequal on signs. We reject one more fully than the other. The former teaches that baptism is a work of obedience in which God does not strengthen and confirm our faith. The latter teaches that every baptism is efficacious to the point of if you are baptized, you are saved. We reject both of those positions. Again, those errors are not equal. But neither, at the same time, neither gives us the full robustness of the teaching of Holy Scripture. Third and finally, it is the sacrament of baptism which brings us into the family of God. There are exceptions, the thief on the cross, in the family of God. Those who die before they are able to be baptized, in the family of God. But the normative way of God's legal announcement of our adoption as his sons and daughters through baptism, 
through faith, repentance, and baptism, we are brothers and sisters of Christ and one another. The blood of Christ, the abiding of the Holy Spirit, and the waters of baptism form an unbreakable bond through which God holds us fast to himself, and we hold fast to one another. We are then continually nurtured through the family meal, the Eucharist. I cannot end a class that focuses on baptism without mentioning that I think this is still true. We have a service of holy baptism scheduled for October 17th. Nor can I end without making a plea to those of you who have not yet been baptized. Come and join us in the family of God. Bring your children into the blessings of the covenant. It is only in Christ that we will find the forgiveness of our sins and God's promise to cleanse us and give us new hearts. So hear the words of St. Peter in Acts 2, 38-39. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Join us in the family of God. Amen.